Today is day 337 for me, and I'm still not recovered. That's Chelsea Aliona. I first got sick on March 9th. I woke up with a debilitating headache that was kind of migraine level, and that continued for a full and constant six days. Then I got a two-day fever uh, and a non-productive cough. (coughs) Chelsea is known as a COVID-19 long hauler. When she was first experiencing COVID symptoms back in March, she didn't meet the criteria to receive a COVID test until about a month later. In the months since, even though her symptoms haven't gone away, Chelsea said she's felt dismissed and sometimes even told, you're not actually sick. I had a nebulizer at home already, so I had requested more solution, and I began treating myself. Chelsea said that it wasn't until November that she felt her doctors were really listening. She now has a standing appointment with her primary care doctor every week, in addition to referrals for specialists to try to figure out the treatment she needs. But it's still very much an uphill battle. Um, I was somebody who, uh, well, I am somebody who is, um, uh, this is COVID brain kicking and I forget words. Um, uh... Welcome to Skim This. In our main story this week, we'll hear more from Chelsea and another COVID long hauler. We'll also talk to a doctor at one of the few medical clinics in the U.S. specifically treating long haulers and ask her why this community of patients is having such a hard time getting the care they need. But before that, we'll give you the latest on this week's biggest headlines, including former President Trump's second impeachment trial, what's behind the recent series of violent attacks against Asian Americans, and the deets on a global shortage of chips. Also on the show, we'll break down the Dogecoin hype in a skim minute, talk with a tax expert on things to look out for when you're filing, yeah, it's that time again, and fact check some pretty uncool statements from the guy running the Tokyo Olympics. But first, we had a big interview this week with Vice President Kamala Harris about how the next COVID relief bill can help support women. All right, let's do it. Last year, as unemployment rates in the U.S. rose to levels not seen since the Great Depression, it didn't take long for economists breaking down the numbers to spot a trend, that women have been more affected than men. It's not a pretty picture. Women's participation in the labor force is now at a 33-year low. 2.3 million women that were working pre-pandemic aren't working now. And mothers, especially those with young children, have been particularly affected. So... Why moms? They're bearing the brunt of childcare during COVID, especially with schools going virtual, leaving moms to figure out how to do their full-time jobs while also watching their kids 24-7. Or not. In addition to financial insecurity and career setbacks, that pressure has taken a toll on mental health, as study after study has found that working moms are suffering from extreme levels of burnout and stress. And it's an even bleaker picture for women of color. Black mothers are reportedly leaving the workforce at more than twice the rate of white mothers, highlighting how the pandemic has disproportionately impacted women of color. So that's a lot of bad news about the state of women at work. People from the media to the president of the United States are now calling this a national emergency. But what's actually going to change? And will it come close to addressing a problem that's been largely ignored for decades, 
as the U.S. remains the only high-income nation in the world that doesn't provide paid family leave. Unlike some other wealthy countries, the U.S. also doesn't provide universal access to early childhood education and doesn't even set a standard for what a regular school day looks like for young children. Good luck planning a work schedule around that. Today, The Skim spoke with Vice President Kamala Harris about what the Biden administration wants to do to get women back to work as part of a new coronavirus relief bill. Any policy changes in that bill might be more short-term than long-term, but could they be an important first step? Here's Skim HQ'er Eugenia Cassidy's interview with Vice President Harris. So I want to start with the COVID relief bill. Can you summarize the plan for us and specifically for people who haven't heard anything about it? Can you explain it in a couple of sentences? So it's the American Rescue Plan. And it's basically it's about folks who are just trying to survive right now and helping them get through. It really is literally about rescuing people. We have hundreds of thousands of of people who have lost family members and friends. People have died. We are looking at millions of people who have contracted the virus. We are looking at millions of people out of work. A number I saw recently, 13 million people, I think, are describing their household as being hungry. We're in the middle of a hunger crisis in America. So this is about rescuing people right now because we're still in the midst of this hurricane that is raging called a pandemic. So what does it do? For people who are most in need, $1,400 direct checks. What does it do? It says, hey, we need to have paid family leave for people. What does it do? It says, if you are a small business owner, we're going to give you relief so you can stay in business or even grow your business. Um, What do we say? We say, you know what? Minimum wage, $7.25 an hour means $15,000 a year. Two-thirds of minimum wage workers are women of color. Can't live off of that. We need to increase minimum wage. And it says, hey, we need to reopen the schools because our kids want to go back to school. Their parents want them to go back to school. The teachers want to teach. And their education, especially when we're talking about, you know, K through 12, each day they miss school is a pretty significant phase of their educational process. So that's it in a nutshell. I want to hone in on the paid family leave issue you talked about. It's a massive problem that has been magnified by the pandemic. Yep. Or is the U.S. ever going to have a permanent national family leave policy? And, you know, our audience is wondering when can they see that? We better. And let me just say this. Tragically, this pandemic, to your point, has been an accelerator meaning the things that were bad before are even worse now. For, for those for whom things were bad before, they're even worse now. Everything that was bad before is now under a microscope and everyone can see all of the fissures and the defects in our system. Paid sick leave, paid family leave, one of those examples. Because here's the thing, in a pandemic, working people should be able to stay at home when they are sick and not have to worry about staying at home while you're sick or putting food on the table for your kids. Paid sick leave, paid family leave, same point. You got a parent who contracted COVID or maybe they have cancer or you have a child who's got pneumonia. Working people wanna work, but they need to take care of their families. It's only humane and right to say, working people should have some time to be able to take care of emergencies and not have to worry about paying their rent. So yeah, we need to deal with this. 
women in particular are in a financial and career crisis right now. It's yeah. even being called a she session. So yeah. what are you and President Biden doing to get women back to work beyond a stimulus check, which is a great start, but might not get them back to the office? Yeah. So first of all, we are looking at what I call a national emergency. This is a national emergency. Two and a half million women have left the workforce during this pandemic. And in large part because when you have to make decisions about how you're gonna take care of your family, it's the women who end up being the ones who are gonna stay at home to take care of the kids because the kids aren't going to school. And here's a basic point. When you lift up the economic status of women, you lift up the economic status of families and communities and all of society benefits. So that's how the president and I look at what we need to do around women in the workforce. One, it's a matter of equity and fairness. Two, it's a matter of how everyone as a society will benefit, how the economy as a whole will be better. When women are in the workforce, when they are paid equal pay for equal work, and when they have the benefits that all working people should have, such as again, paid sick leave and family leave. What about women of color in particular? I know you mentioned yeah. it as part of the American Rescue Plan, but yeah. what steps are you taking to make sure, particularly in their finances and their careers right now, yeah. that they don't fall behind even more than they already have? Well, right. And so again, let's go back to the point about a minimum wage, $7.25 an hour and two thirds of minimum wage workers are women of color. Um, you look at who the frontline workers are who are women. Well, first of all, a majority of them have been in many of the professions women and women of color. If you look at the people who are working in the hospitals, who are the frontline workers, be it the grocery store worker or, or the person who is actually um, helping people get by every day in terms of home health care. So we need to look at what those jobs are and we need to pay people for their value. And we also need to understand the disparities that are front and center for us around race and gender that have been highlighted by this pandemic. Because again, the inequities that existed before the pandemic around race and gender are even worse now. Let's talk about schools. You mentioned okay. you want to open them. People want to keep their kids safe, but it's also impossible to have a full-time job, have kids at home on Zoom. So you and President Biden have said you want to open schools, but there are also a lot of unions saying that their teachers don't feel safe in schools. So how do you reconcile those two things to make sure kids are learning the way they should be? Well, first of all, one way to reconcile it is everyone wants the same thing. We want our kids to go back to school and we want them to go back to school in a safe way. We want their teachers to be safe. We want, it's not, it's not only teachers, it's the cafeteria worker, it's the school bus driver, right? And so we have in the American Rescue Plan, a big chunk of it is about helping to reopen the school safely. For example, you, you know, for most folks and most kids who are in public schools in particular, in many places in our country, rural and urban, the kids can't drink out of the water fountain because 
the, the infrastructure around our schools has been so degraded over so many years, right? So part of what we need to do to make it safe for everybody to go back to school is we need to deal with things like that and the ventilation system. We need to have a, a, a school system where kids can go back and socially distance, where they can have PPEs and masks and things of that nature. So those are the kinds of things that we do in the American Rescue Plan, which is provide schools and, and, and local government with the resources they need for the kids to go back to school and be safe until we get rid of this pandemic. The American Rescue Plan, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people think will do a great job of getting women maybe back to where they were. But how do we get them past that? You're this so is right. now the second big financial crisis that this generation of women have dealt with. And so I think a lot of them are thinking, okay, I could be back to where I was a year ago, but how is this administration going to move my career and my paycheck forward? Yeah, you're so right. And I'll, I'll tell you, first of all, that one of the things that you probably know about this administration is we are always asking that question of ourselves, which is how is this going to impact women? Is it going to uplift women? Um, how is it going to impact uh, you know, black and brown folks? How is it going to impact poor people? These are the questions we ask on everything that we're doing. Um, in terms of we don't want to go back to where we were before the pandemic because that wasn't good. We were still at a situation where women were not being paid their value. Women were not being paid equal for equal work. There's still so much to do that is on that piece. Affordable childcare. Childcare, the cost of childcare from most communities can be as expensive as sending a kid to college. Um, when you look at it in terms of childcare deserts, in many places in our country, there is no childcare available. So part of what we are doing is saying we've got to have affordable childcare. It's got to be affordable for everyone and all working people. We're saying we need to do what is necessary to give women equal status in the workplace in terms of legal protections. We are saying that we need to also ensure that when we think about women, we also think about girls and what we are doing in terms of providing opportunities for girls. And that relates to a lot of federal um, enforcement actions, as well as what we do in terms of um, creating incentives um, for girls throughout the system. And, and this is the priority. It's a great priority for our administration. Thank you so much, Vice President Harris. We, we really appreciate it. So what do you think? Next week on the show, we're going to open up the discussion about the state of women at work and the crisis facing moms at home to you and to some experts. We want to hear what you think about how Vice President Harris, Congress, your state government, your employer or community are talking about and handling this crisis. And we want to hear your story. We've left a link in our show notes to a page where you can submit a few lines about what you've been going through. And don't be surprised if we reach out in return. Or if email's more of your thing, send us a note to audio at skim.com or leave us a voicemail. Remember those? At 646-461-6470. It's time to quickly recap some stories that have broken over the course of the week and to provide you with a shot of the headlines along with a chaser of context. All right, first up, former President Donald Trump's second impeachment trial is underway in the U.S. Senate. We've already talked about Trump being the first ever president to be impeached twice, that if the Senate does vote to impeach, Trump could also be barred from ever running for office again, but also how a 50-50 Senate divide means that probably won't happen. Yet Trump's Senate trial is going ahead anyway, and it's been an emotional roller coaster that's tipped some Republican senators in favor of impeachment. 
The Dems' argument has relied on recreating the events of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, in the hopes that it would force senators to relive the day and think about Trump's possible role in provoking what went down. Some of the members of Congress formally presenting the case for impeachment have even shared their personal experiences as they sheltered in place and even thought they were about to die. They've also played senators a bunch of never-before-seen footage, of rioters smashing the Capitol doors, attacking law enforcement, and audio of Capitol Police begging for backup. We need some reinforcements up here now. They're starting to pull the gates down. They're throwing metal poles at us. Cruiser 50, do you still get up here? Trump's defense may have been trying to lower the emotional temperature, but it seems like they may have just confused their audience. If the individual state legislators, legislatures didn't adopt the Constitution, we would not have it. That was one of Trump's lawyers unsuccessfully arguing that going ahead with impeachment was unconstitutional. Maine Senator Susan Collins said she was, quote, perplexed by that legal argument, while Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana said Trump's lawyers did everything they could but to talk about the question at hand. In the coming days, Trump's team will get a chance to present its case against impeachment. But it's worth remembering that to impeach the former president, Dems need to get two-thirds of the Senate on board, which, despite the comments from some Republican senators this week, isn't likely. All right, next headline. In the Bay Area recently, a series of violent attacks targeting Asian Americans, particularly the elderly, and there has been more of the same across the country. The context here is really important. Here's what happened. Last month, an 84-year-old man from Thailand was killed in the San Francisco area. On the same day, three others were attacked in Oakland's Chinatown. It turns out there's been growing amounts of xenophobia toward Asian Americans since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. One study published in September found that a quarter of all Asian American youth say they've dealt with racism over the past year, mostly in the form of verbal harassment or shunning. Another study found that during just a couple of months last spring, there were thousands of instances of hate acts committed against Asian Americans. San Francisco's mayor and police chief are now promising to address this rise of anti-Asian attacks, while the county's district attorney announced she's investigating whether these attacks were racially motivated and forming a special response unit focused on crimes against Asian Americans. If you've witnessed a hate incident, report it at stopaapihate.org. Our final headline is about a shortage of chips. Car chips. Microchips which might sound like a small problem, but it could have bigger implications. So here's the context. Cars nowadays use computer chips for a bunch of things, from navigation to emissions tracking and controlling the engine. By one industry estimate, electronics now account for 40% of the cost of a new car, but there was a massive disruption to the supply chain almost a year ago, when the pandemic shut down the factories where chips are made. Car sales are starting to rise again after dipping early on in the pandemic. Combine that with other industries also relying on chip technology, and well, demand for chips is up, and supply is down. This shortage is now leading car makers to cut production. They literally can't build cars without these chips. And according to one estimate, the car industry could lose $60 billion because of this. That's potentially some bad news for the economy, and maybe if you want a new vehicle, or everything from a cell phone to a PlayStation 5.
Well, the confusion and the brain fog, uh, that was really bad for me, especially starting off. Um, it was just, I couldn't have a clear co conversation. Um, I remember like talk, trying to talk to my family and I just couldn't have any conversations um, because nothing made sense. I had to think twice as hard just to be able to have any type of conversation with anyone. And then lung pain, um, just like sitting still, it was so, it was very, very, very painful. It was like stabbing uh, pains. Like somebody took a long knife and was just stabbing me every second. Um, so it was, it was challenging and it still is. That's Asia Durr. She's a COVID long hauler. But first and foremost, she's a basketball player, a guard for the New York Liberty. In 2019, she was the WNBA's number two draft pick. Then in June 2020, after her rookie year, she was diagnosed with COVID-19 and hasn't recovered since. I never thought that I could get worse from COVID. I thought I would get better within two weeks, but I got worse. Less than a month after she tested positive, Durr opted out of playing the rest of her season. While there isn't a formal definition, COVID long haulers are typically people who experience a wide range of symptoms long after the initial onset of COVID-19. Some experts say there could be millions of people that are still fighting. Remember how early research suggested that generally it takes around two weeks to recover completely? That's not the case for long haulers. And some of the symptoms they still experience aren't ones commonly associated with COVID. So in addition to feeling tired or out of breath, some long haulers have reported things like significant weight loss, having difficulties in writing or speaking, or heart palpitations. My left eye, I call it my COVID eye. Everybody laughs when I say it, but it's like ever since COVID, my eye, it'll get low sometimes, or I have like this sharp pain just going through my eye. Chelsea Aliona, who we heard from earlier, also suffers from vision problems. The headache varies from maybe a two or a three on the pain scale to like an eight or a nine on the pain scale, but it's never non-existent. It causes blurry vision and double vision. I have insomnia, um, but at the same time, I can be sitting on the couch or sitting at my desk here and conk out and fall asleep. So what does the medical community think about all this? Dr. Monica Lipson is a general internist and a professor at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Last summer, as she and her colleagues started hearing about patients still having symptoms months after they started, and as more articles came out spotlighting this phenomenon, one thing came to mind. We were saying, are we missing something here in our own backyard? And then the wheels were set in motion to open a clinic that specifically caters to COVID long haulers. We realized that if we were going to open a clinic, we wanted to make sure that we had providers who bought into this idea that there was a COVID long haul or COVID long, that there was this series of illness. And so we didn't want patients to have to feel like they had to validate themselves over and over again if they needed to go to cardiology or pulmonology or physical therapy. That So we spent time asking our colleagues that they want to participate and to make sure that we were all on the same page with a care team model. And we opened in the late fall. There are now a handful of these specialized clinics in states like Colorado, Washington, and Texas. 
In New York, Mount Sinai's post-COVID center is designed similar to the clinic they opened to treat 9-11 survivors. But with the rising cases of COVID... Unfortunately, we can't meet the demand, right? We have, we have a wait list. We are a victim of our success. When there aren't enough of these specialized clinics, COVID long haulers can end up hitting a wall when it comes to being taken seriously or finding the right medical care. I can't tell you how many times I was told, no, you cannot see a neurologist. No, you cannot see infectious disease. No, you don't need this imaging. Long haulers, we have, uh, we have filed complaints against our healthcare providers. We have, I had a, a physician who I had, she dismissed me and said all of your symptoms are psychosomatic. And that was even after my positive test. None of our symptoms are psychosomatic and there are still long haulers who are being told you're not actually sick. Dr. Lipson said she's heard this from her patients too. And while sometimes she's reassuring her patients that the care they're receiving from other doctors is good care, in other cases... Sometimes we really provide that first time visit of saying, I hear you, I see you, I've heard this story before. I think that's important. You know, what do we do every day? Probably in our clinic once a week is really tell people, you're not crazy because if you were crazy, I wouldn't have heard the same story for the last 16 weeks, right? Outside of medical clinics, COVID long haulers are banding together virtually to create support groups for people going through similar experiences. Chelsea is part of one of several of those, like the Long Haul COVID Fighters group on Facebook. We have three groups presently. Um, we're talking about launching a fourth. I've been involved with them since March. Um, <laughs> And we've, we've got more than, more than 12,000, 13,000 members in the two groups from more than 98 countries. And I strongly feel like these are people that I am more closely connected to than people I've known my whole life. Nobody else can truly understand the fight um, and the desperation and the frustration and the, the ongoing symptoms that very, we heavily rely on one another. Dr. Lipson says that the medical community which can sometimes be skeptical of letting patients define their own symptoms, needs to be more open to large patient groups coming together to discuss their illnesses, and not just for a therapeutic benefit. Because if the medical community partners with these support groups to better understand what they're going through, it could actually improve research and treatment models. For Asia, the support from her family, teammates, coaches, and the New York Liberty medical team have played a key role in her recovery. One thing that she says has been helpful and that Dr. Lipson also recommends is to keep a journal to track your symptoms. I keep a journal um, daily and I write down every single thing that I think um, may trigger or may not make me feel good. Or I'll write down what I did that day and I'll keep track of each day um, how I felt. Or like if I did too much, I'll know, okay, I can't do that just yet. Um, and also keep a journal just to keep track because I forget a whole lot of things now after having COVID. Um, so stuff like that, you just gotta, like your life does change for some people after having COVID. So just gotta get a feel for like what's new and what's changing within you. And Dr. Lipson says, COVID long haulers have revealed other issues with the US healthcare system overall. We don't have good systems in place about 
what to do with patients once they come out of the hospital and how to ensure they have all the wraparound services they need, which often is not just medical care, right? It's physical therapy, it's nutrition, it's right. Like, so I think what you're seeing in terms of people's frustrations is also a breakdown of, it, it is actually just how our healthcare system works and, and the holes in our current healthcare system. So what's the skim? There's a long road ahead for COVID long haulers. While strides have been made in opening some specialized clinics to help these patients, there aren't enough to meet demand and wait lists continue to get longer. And there's still a lot more research needed to develop the best treatment for post-COVID care. For people suffering from prolonged symptoms, fighting and advocating for themselves is frustrating, and they're often left feeling unheard while still suffering. Doctors are struggling too. They're still learning about this disease, and the wide variation in symptoms makes it hard to create a comprehensive treatment plan. But if there's one thing that all of our guests agreed was helping, talking about it. I made a, a promise to myself when I had first got sick and like when it first got worse in July, I told myself like, man, I never knew I could get this sick. So being the fact that I am the sick, when I get the chance to tell my story, I definitely will. This is an example of how bad it could get for any person. My goal is just to take it day by day. Um, I will be back playing. We just don't know when. Um, I'm striving to play this year. Um, but I just have to take it one step at a time because um, each day is different. Thank you for this chance. Uh, it just gives me another chance to give people hope and just inspire them. Um, that's all I'm, I want to do is inspire people to keep going, especially when life gets hard, just keep going. So thank you. has been a great year for cryptocurrencies. You may have seen that the value of Bitcoin has gone up in recent weeks. This recent surge has inspired a bunch of memes, but also has a lot of people questioning whether these types of digital currencies, which don't even physically exist, are more than just hype and could actually have a larger place in the global economy. There's still a lot of disagreement on that front, but we did want to tell you about one type of crypto that's been getting a fair share of attention on the internet. Dogecoin is on fire. Dogecoin to the moon. On today's video, we are going to be talking about Dogecoin. Is this cryptocurrency going to be going to the moon? Meet Dogecoin or Dogecoin. We'll tell you why it's the hottest coin on the block, at least for now, in 60 seconds. Quick refresher. Cryptocurrencies are all digital currencies. Like the dollar, you can use cryptocurrencies to buy goods and services online. But unlike the US dollar, cryptos aren't controlled by any one government. So no bank or government is actually backing it. There are reportedly thousands of these online currencies, but a few definitely have been in the headlines, especially since online trading apps like Robinhood make them really easy to buy and sell. You've probably heard of Bitcoin or Ethereum and now Dogecoin. Dogecoin was originally created by some developers as, well, a joke. Its name even comes from a meme of a dog. But since the last week of January, Dogecoin's gains are pretty real. It's up over 600%. Elon Musk and Snoop Dogg, or Snoop Doge, have even jumped on the bandwagon, hyping the currency on social media. Now, lots of people on the internet want in. 
At just over 7 cents each, Dogecoins feel affordable, at least compared to the $45,000 cost of Bitcoin. But for whether you should buy, cryptocurrencies in general are pretty volatile, and you could see some big returns or big losses. So even if everyone is hoping Dogecoin goes to the moon, we're gonna take Dogecoin to the moon. There's always a risk it comes back down to Earth. How do we do? Want us to skim a burning question from the news on an upcoming episode? Send us an idea to audioattheskim.com. Ladies and gentlemen, mark your calendars. Because tax season is here. In all seriousness, you can start to file your taxes beginning on Friday, February 12th. And while we know trying to find your W-2 might not be the way you want to spend your Saturday when you could be watching Netflix, you've got to do this at some point. We can't actually skim thousands of pages of tax code, but we can certainly try to hit the highlights. Especially if the last year has meant changing jobs, starting a side hustle, or looking for work. By the way, we definitely needed to call in reinforcements on this one. Meet Keisha Jante. I am an income tax strategist. Um, and my business is the Millennial Taxpert. Jonte told us before you even get started, you need to get prepared, which starts with gathering everything you need. So, snacks. But also lots and lots of paperwork. The main thing that I tell people when they're getting ready to file is make sure that you have all of your documents. Then you need to decide how much of a hot mess your taxes are actually going to be. And that might mean you need to call in some professional help, either with a tax preparer service or an actual tax professional. No matter how your taxes are getting done, there are a lot of benefits to filing early. One major reason? If you owe on your tax return, if you know that you're gonna owe, having your return prepared as early as possible is going to allow you to budget so that you can get that amount saved up so that you can pay by April 15th and so that you're minimizing or eliminating any penalties or interest that you would have to pay by paying late. Not to mention, the earlier you file, the earlier you can get your tax refund, which is basically money back in your pocket sooner. So if that's convinced you to get a jumpstart on your taxes, let's talk about a few reasons your tax return might look different than it did last year. Thanks, 2020. The first reason, stimulus checks. Here's the deal. If you received a stimulus check for the correct amount, you don't need to do much. If you're filing your return on your own, or even if you're using a preparer, you'll need to let them know how much you did receive so that we know that there's no additional credit that you need to claim on your tax return. But if you received a check for the wrong amount, you could actually get a credit for the money you're owed. The system is gonna calculate how much of a credit or stimulus you should have gotten based on your income, and then you'll tell them how much you actually got in the stimulus payment, and the difference will come back to you as a credit. The second reason your tax situation may have changed? If you've claimed unemployment over the last year, and Jonte has an important PSA for us. A lot of people don't realize that unemployment compensation is taxable income. Meaning, if you've received unemployment in the past year, you could still owe the government money. 
either because you didn't know unemployment was taxable or because the taxes that already came out of your unemployment didn't equal the total amount you need to pay. There's some good news, however. Congress is allowing Americans to use their 2019 income to qualify for certain credits, like an earned income credit or a child tax credit. So even if you're out of work at the moment, you can use your old income statements to get some tax relief. A final reason your tax return may look different this year? If you've been freelancing, working multiple jobs, or even started your own DIY mask business. Jonte told us there are two buckets of those kinds of people. Some people were just picking up extra jobs and they weren't really freelancing. They're just employees of multiple jobs throughout the year. And I have seen quite a few returns now that have many more W-2s on it for 2020 than it would have in 2019 because of the situation. If that's you, you just need to get all your ducks or W-2 forms in a row before you file. And then there are the people who are self-employed, like freelancers. If you have expenses related to your self-employment, you can deduct them. For instance, if you're a freelance writer and you pay for a writing class or continuing education, you can actually deduct those expenses from the taxes that you owe. So when you're getting all your paperwork together, be sure to grab those receipts too. When it comes to freelancing, we have one other PSA for you. You're now considered a business owner. Sounds fancy, but it means that your tax rate can essentially double. Even if you don't have a business license, even if you're not an LLC or anything like that, you're still considered a business. You'll be considered a sole proprietor. So now you need to report your business income on your tax return. And depending on whether you have any profit, you're going to pay self-employment tax. Okay, so those are some of the ways your tax return could have changed because of 2020. It's important to be aware and to be prepared as early as possible. And we know some of you might be doing your taxes with a partner. But even if you aren't the tax guru in your household, Jonte told us you probably should review your return together. In a married couple, they're both liable for what's on the tax return. So it's really important that they both understand what is going on that tax return and what they're liable for. So if you don't already have plans this Valentine's Day weekend, or even if you do, consider penciling in some quality time to talk numbers. I mean, I'm a tax nerd, so I would say, you know, sitting down and going over your taxes is the perfect Valentine's Day evening. <laughs> That's the perfect thing to do for Valentine's Day. Sit down and go over your tax return, understand what's on it. And then, you know, you guys can discuss all the ways that you're going to spend your tax refund together. Before we go today, we need to talk about the Tokyo Olympics. They've been postponed from last summer to this summer. And whether they'll even be able to happen safely then is TBD. But what caught our attention were some comments from Yoshiro Mori, Japan's 83-year-old former prime minister, who's now in charge of pulling off the Olympics. Last week, Mori was asked about Japan's Olympic committee falling short of its goal of having 40% of its board members be women. Currently, that number stands just over 20%. But instead of laying out his plans, he instead chose to complain about having to deal with women in board meetings. According to reports, Maury said, quote, We have to make sure their speaking time is restricted somewhat. They have difficulty finishing, which is annoying. I object! In the wake of Maury's comments, around 400 Olympic volunteers have reportedly resigned in protest after Maury refused to step down himself. Also, quick fact check. Maury's comments weren't just completely out of line, they're not backed up by science. 
A study a few years ago found that it's actually men that tend to fill meetings with the sound of their own voice, and that that pattern gets worse when men in meetings have powerful jobs. So, Mr. Mori, you might want to take a look in the mirror. Also, turns out I just told that story and fact-checked a former prime minister in less than 90 seconds. How's that for using my time wisely? Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. Our head of audio is Graylin Brashear, and I'm your host, Justine Davey, signing off for one last time. Skim This will be back next Thursday with a new host behind the mic. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. <laughs>